Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the New Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 14th, 2018, and this is show number 17, oh, 1701. No, it is not NC1701. It is show number 701. Well, as you either remember from last week or because you're skilled at counting backwards, we had a 700th episode celebration last week. This week, I got a 700th present in the mail that absolutely warmed my heart. Now, people ask me why I podcast, especially when it's essentially free with donations for those who feel so inclined. This is why. It's the community. Sandy Foster is one of the most participative people in our little family, especially in the live show. We had the joy of meeting her in person in Las Vegas earlier this year, and she immediately endeared herself to me by making fun of Chuck. Anyway, Sandy's Twitter handle is MacQuilter, and she sent me a positively gorgeous quilted pillow. It's off-white with creative stitching on it, and in two of the corners are rainbow apple logos. They're stunningly beautiful. On the back, she stitched in the pod feet themselves, and in the other corner, it says, with an ever-so-slight apple bias and her name, city, and the date. I am completely floored by this gift. I just can't believe it. It is, it, it's just so beautiful. It's a gift of her time, of her love of Apple, along with many of the rest of us, and that she'd think of me and send me something so wonderful. I will treasure this pillow forever. Well, this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond was Nurse Coronado and Dan Eckmeyer. They're both blind and both upgraded from iPhone 7 to iPhone XS. They talk us through the changes from losing the home button and having Face ID and how they feel about the new gestures. It's a really interesting discussion from a different perspective. Spoiler, they both love the new phones. You know, one of my pet peeves is when people apologize at the beginning of a podcast, like when they point out that they have a cold. I mean, sorry, I can tell when you have a cold. You don't need to tell me you have a cold. I also don't like excuses about why a show hasn't been produced in a long time either. In my opinion, either do it on a schedule or don't and stop apologizing. One or the other, it's fine to not be on a schedule. Just stop apologizing about it. Anyway, I bring that pet peeve up because I start this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond with an apology. It turns out there were some problems with the audio in the show that I tried to circumvent, but I was not successful. Dan had a bird in his room, which I heard, and I asked that it be quieted. I thought you could just throw a towel over a cage to make a bird think it's nighttime, and then they stop talking. Anyway, he did quiet the bird down, but unfortunately, it woke up pretty soon after we started recording. I cut out its chatter whenever I could, but a lot of it was while he or Nurus were talking, so I couldn't cut it out then. Nurus, on the other hand, was in a closed car, which is actually acoustically fantastic a fantastic place to do a recording. Obviously, she wasn't driving. She's blind, right? But the problem was that her mother kept opening the car door and putting stuff in the car. She muted her mic as often as she could, but of course, I wanted her opinion on things, and so the sound does come through a fair amount of times. Again, I cut it out wherever I could. So, yeah, I started the show with an apology. Now, I hope I haven't convinced you not to listen because the content is interesting. You can find this episode in your podcatcher of choice under Chit Chat Across the Pond Light or the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed. And of course, you can always listen over at podfeed.com. Now, this is not going to be a really long episode of the No Cellacast. We have the great joy of having uh, our little two-year-old grandson Forbes with us for six days. And uh, there was a lot of times where I had to choose between playing with him and writing blog posts and getting things ready to record. And um, I'm just wondering, just spitballing here, can you guess which one won? Anyway, we do have a great show, but I wanted to tell you that it wasn't going to be a terribly long episode. 
We have a listener contribution for the show coming up, but before I can give it to you, I have to tell you the story to set it up. As you most certainly recall, I did a nuke and pave of my MacBook Pro a few weeks ago for my installation of Mojave. I checked all of my mission-critical apps before this endeavor. One high-priority app for me is the cloud backup service, Backblaze. Now, backup tools under Mojave need to be given special permissions. If you look in System Preferences, Security and Privacy on the Privacy tab, you will see a new option in there called Full Disk Access. On installation of SuperDuper, it opened this window and asked for permission to be granted. So in order to grant that permission, all I had to do was click on the lock, enter my admin credentials, and then check a box next to the SuperDuper app in the list. Now I heard Dave Hamilton on the Mac Geek app say that Carbon Copy Cloner was also ready on day one of Mojave, and Carbon Copy Cloner's installation also walked you through how to give full disk access so it could run your backups. Sadly, though, the folks at Backblaze were evidently asleep at the wheel and were not ready for this change when Mojave launched. I was aware of this before I went to Mojave, but uh, they did have a workaround. When they realized the problem, they put up a blog post that outlined an incredibly arcane instruction set, which, if followed, would ensure all of your data was backed up. They specifically said that if you didn't follow these instructions, your photos would not be backed up. In order to set up uh, Backblaze under Mojave, you had to right-click on the application, choose Show Package Contents, drill down into the contents until you found a file called BZSRV, and then drag that file into the System Preference Full Disk Access section. This was not exactly an ideal method. I mean, you know, workable for most Nocilla castaways, but daunting for some, I'm sure. Well, I did install Backblaze as one of my very first set of apps, but I didn't do the full disk access dance. I wanted to wait until my photos had all repopulated before switching that on. Now, it didn't occur to me that Backblaze would still start running backups without the full disk access step. The way I discovered it was doing the backups was when I got a warning explaining that my 15-day trial was almost up. Well, of course, I'd never logged into Backblaze, so Backblaze would never know that I was on the same machine since I had done a nuke and pave. No problem, I'll just enter my license key and be done with it. Well, it turns out it's not quite that easy. The tricky bit is you have to log in and inherit your old backup in order to inherit your license. Now, that kind of makes sense, right? Why start a whole new backup? I mean, I didn't really mean to make this temporary trial backup, but I did. So I logged into my account, I did the two-factor authentication, I told it to inherit my old backup, and I went on my merry way. Well, the next day, Steve comes in and says, Hey, Backblaze says someone else inherited my backup and now I can't be backed up. Well, it looks like maybe I wasn't as alert as I should have been. I went into Backblaze and discovered that I had, indeed, inherited Steve's backup instead of my own. So now I had my original backup, my trial backup, and now I had polluted Steve's backup with all of my stuff. But even worse, when I tried to go back in and inherit the right backup, it didn't work. The main problem was that I was no longer getting queried for the two-factor authentication. All right, well, I thought, okay, let's just try from Steve's computer. Let's try to steal his own backup back. Since I was able to steal from him, he should be able to steal it back. Nope, no two-factor authentication prompt for him either. Now, the good news is that Backblaze has live chat support. And my little friend Troy, and I mean my little friend Troy, he was awesome. He jumped in with both feet to help me. He was so responsive that I actually suspected he was only helping little old me. He assured me he was helping others too, but they keep the numbers to a minimum of the number of people they can help at the same time, so it feels like personalized service. 
He gave me instructions to uninstall and reinstall Backblaze as a starting point, but he told me I should restart between the uninstall and reinstall. I was afraid to leave the chat, but he said, hey, we're going on lunch break from 12 to 1 anyway, and if I run into any trouble, I could jump into chat again at 1 and we keep on going. I did run into problems, so after lunch, I tried to get back on chat. I was denied at 1 o'clock. I was denied at 1.30, at 2, 2.30, and even 3 o'clock. I tweeted back Blaze, and I got the helpful response of, are you still having problems? Well, yeah, I tweeted you. What's your answer there? Anyway, they suggested I email them back. So I wrote an email, a frustrated email, and I figured it would be best if I included my case number. I remembered that when my chat was complete with Troy before lunch, their Zendesk system automatically emailed me a transcript. I headed over to my mail to search for the email from Troy. And now you're finally, you're going to understand why I told you this long text story as a setup for the listener review that I've been, I've been teasing you about. Well, when I searched for Troy and mail.app, it found the transcript and it found the case number I was seeking. But it also found an email from someone named Troy Shimkus from January of this year. And that email had in it a recorded review. This was curious because the subject did not sound familiar to me. I started playing the recording and I was certain I had never heard it. Now, I really hope that I was mistaken because that's pretty rude if I didn't play something that somebody sent me, you know, what is it, nine nine months ago? So hoping I was mistaken, I did a search for Troy's name on podfeet.com and even the subject of his review, and it was not to be found. There's one thing that makes this worse. According to the email exchange that I discovered, I had specifically asked Troy to make a recording for the show. So that meant a Nocilla Castaway took time out of their day to record a fantastic review with great detail and great audio that I asked for, and I completely ignored him. Now, I had two choices. I could continue to be rude and discourteous and hide and hope I never ran across Troy again, that he'd never find me, or I could throw myself on his mercy and beg forgiveness. Of course, I had to choose the beg for forgiveness path. Well, the good news is that Troy took the high road, let me off the hook, and told me not to be angry with myself. Of course, that made me feel even worse. He's a champion of a human being, don't you think? But it gets even better. Like I said, the audio is great. It's not just high quality to listen to. The story is extremely well organized and thought out, just the kind of thing you want to hear. I suspected he'd written up notes for this because it's so well organized, so I asked him if he had text for a blog post. I know, I left him in the lurch for nine months and now I'm asking even more of him. Well, this prince of a man immediately responded with the notes he'd written all those months ago and let me publish them as a blog post entitled Cord Cutting Solutions by Troy Shimkus. In a way, I'm glad that I ran into troubles with Backblaze's help desk because otherwise my search for one Troy wouldn't have uncovered my egregious treatment of Mr. Shimkus and you wouldn't have this marvelous review to which you can listen. Well, before I let Troy finally have the floor after nine months, let me finish the Backblaze story. The next day, I tried again with the help desk at Backblaze, and Troy jumped right on. He explained that they'd been getting tons of calls since Mojave, maybe because they didn't have it ready on time. And anyway, their system is designed so they don't have too many people chatting with them at once, hence my impression of one-on-one service. I didn't hold it against him since he didn't design it, and I only pouted with him for a little while. He had me pull a log file. They have great documentation on their site on how to pull this file. And he said it looked like iStap menus was somehow interrupting or blocking the handshake required to authenticate to their server to inherit the backup. 
He had me do some shenanigans, including killing iStep menus on my machine, which fixed the problem, by the way. But when we did Steve's Mac, we only quit iStep menus, and Steve was able to get in right away to the server to inherit his backup. I was very curious that iStep menus was the root cause, but it worked, and I was happy. I have to say that fixing the problem with Backblaze wasn't easy, but Troy's help was fantastic. The other good news is that Backblaze fixed the full disk access problem I described at the beginning, and now it works just like all the other backup apps. Now, you do still have to grant full disk access, but it's only a matter of saying yes, authenticating, and checking a box. I'm still happy with Backblaze, and I recommend it as my off-site backup tool of choice. There, you got a great story of backups redeemed, and now you can finally get to hear Troy Shimpkus and his story of how he helps his friends do their cord cutting. Hello, Allison and fellow castaways. I wanted to share my experience with cord cutting with you all, as that seems to be a hot topic. Since here in Central Florida, we don't have very many options, getting a good deal can be difficult. Cable and satellite packages range wildly in pricing, and deals are only for new subscribers, so you only get the best options if you hop around every year. So several years ago, we made the choice to cut all TV services and go internet only. This journey has introduced us to pretty much every device out there. Tuner cards for computers, watching through gaming consoles, Fire TV, Roku, Apple TV, you name it. We even tried out the Kodi platform along the way. Also through our journey, I've helped several friends discover setups for themselves, including my parents and some friends of mine that are retired, and just hopes for helping them cut extraneous expenses. So the setup I wanted to share today is what I have for my retired friends. Their goals were pretty simple. One, reduce the number of different remotes and requirements for switching inputs between the TV, cable box, soundbar, DVD player. All those got to be a little confusing at times. They wanted, number two, local over-the-air channels. And number three, they were certain, albeit limited, channels they wanted access to that they had gotten kind of hooked on through their existing Dish TV. They weren't big on eating DVR, especially since I introduced them to Netflix a while back. I often try to introduce slowly elements to my friends, one little thing at a time, after a while bring it all together, which makes it much easier to swallow than a bunch of big changes at once. So for hardware, what we have in their setup is a, number one, a Vizio E-Series TV, of which I've bought several Vizios over the last years and seem to be very happy with their quality and ease of use. I like the built-in Chromecast as a nice catch-all option and something that our guests that have Androids can use if they want to share content as well. We have an Apple TV, the latest non-4K version. This option became a great option since Amazon Prime Video came to the platform a few weeks ago. As these friends have a Prime subscription, it helps them watch some of the shows they've gotten used to there as well. We have the $149 version, so not a big expense for them at the time. We also have a basic soundbar. It's one of the RCA brand 2.1 channels. The difficulty with this was that this item does not have HDMI, so you cannot control it using CEC or any other single remote options there. Um, this was a very inexpensive one that they've had for several years, and since it was working just fine for them, they didn't want to keep spending more money on that, things that weren't necessary for them. We also now have an HD Home Run Connect to bring the over-the-air channels back to their network and thus onto the Apple TV. This costs about $100 at the local Best Buy, and when combined with a nice Clearstream 4MAX HD TV antenna, which has the 70-mile radius, important for them being on a 10-acre farm kind of in a rural area up here, was also about $100 from Best Buy. 
So the last piece of the puzzle that we just added was that home run connect and the HDTV antenna. This is what allows them to finally have access to their overlayer channels and cancel their local dish TV. Now with that hardware, they use the following services. We've got Direct TV now, which is we're using the lowest plan at about $35 a month and the HBO add-on for another five. So with taxes, somewhere around $45 a month. We like this interface a lot better than the Sling TV and some of the other services we looked at to replace for their kind of cable TV interface. They also have the Netflix subscription for two screens HD, which is about $11 a month. And they have their Amazon Prime Video, which they do $100 a year, so somewhere around eight and a quarter a month. So for services, they're paying about $65 a month or so. And uh, the option of pausing any or all of the services month to month is something that's great for them and something that no cable or satellite service offers yet. So, and then for their internet, they have just the option for DSL in their area, which is somewhere around $50 a month, depending on taxes and things for them. And helps them to accomplish the, uh, sc- the streaming now, since the DSL just about a year ago offered the speeds that were high enough for, for good quality streaming. Now, the most interesting part for them was that the over-the-air channels. Now, this could be done a lot cheaper, probably, with just a basic antenna and tuner, something that the Vizio TVs don't include sometimes, by the way, so that's something to be watchful for when buying a new TV. But we wanted to reduce the number of remotes and channel switching and input switching across all the devices, so we went with the HD Home Run Connect. This was amazingly super simple to set up, and it works wonderful. Along with the HD TV antenna, they get about 70 local channels streaming over the air, And the magic part that makes this all come together was an app called Channels for Apple TV, which runs about $24.95. And the setup for this could not have been more simple. You simply plug the antenna into the HD Home Run Connect. You plug the HD Home Run Connect into your router, which must be done with a hardwired cable, but doesn't have to be anywhere near your TV. Then you use a computer on the network to do the channel scan on the HD Home Run Connect, and it finds all the channels. Then the last part is you just simply open the channels app on the Apple TV and boom, they were all just sitting there. No extra steps, no extra scanning. They were all there and they all had a lovely little thumbnail that told you what was currently playing on that channel, which makes for a great interface for channel surfing over the air channels. So there you have it in a nutshell. Our retired friends who are both in their late sixties have now been reduced to their $240 internet and dish TV bill to about uh, 65 for streaming and 50 for internet in general which is a huge savings for them on their limited budget now. And their one big complaint, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is the Apple TV remote is terrible. But that's a whole different story. I hope this helps give you some hope and some options for looking to effectively cut the cable cord and simplify your setup. And thank you for listening. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Troy. I promise the next recording you do... I won't make you wait longer than like six months for a, for a uh, response from me, okay? Well, I tried to uh, actually help Troy out a little bit, by a little tiny bit of payback maybe, by telling him that you can buy iTunes gift cards on sale really, really often by, uh, there's, a, there's a Twitter handle, it's something like uh, iTunes gift cards or iTunes sales, something like that on Twitter, but you can find them on often 10 to 15% off. 
And if you put the iTunes gift card into your iTunes account, that becomes the credit from which they pull all fees that you pay through iTunes. So let's say you get a $100 gift card. You only pay 85 bucks for it. You put it into your iTunes account. And now um, the first, until that's depleted, it will charge that first, not your credit card. And that means anything you sign up for, like Hulu or um, HBO or your your iTunes music, any of those subscriptions that you sign up for within um, iTunes are essentially fifteen percent off. So whenever those things come out, I always buy you know a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks worth, and I just throw it in there, and then I let it ride for you know six months or maybe faster sometimes, depending on what I'm buying. And every single thing you buy in the app store or whatever, it ends up being fifteen uh, percent off. So that was my little tip back, and and hopefully to uh, maybe help try out a little bit. Well, this week we had two people decide to become patrons of the Podfeet podcast. Both John, I'm going to get this name right, John Tiftikjian and Wayne Karaki both feel that the podcast provide value to them, and they showed it in a financial way. One of the most interesting things I find about the patrons is that mostly they're made up of people I've never talked to. They're people that have never emailed me, we've never tweeted back and forth, we've never Facebooked, we've never Google Plused each other. They sit in the audience with their hands folded and politely listen and then decide to support the show. That's not the way I would describe the uh, the live Nocilla Castaways, by the way, at all. Anyway, I, I'm not saying no Nocilla, live Nocilla Castaways support the show, but it's very interesting to me that the vast majority are people I've never talked to. But apparently you're finding value from the show and that makes me really, really happy. If you find that you get value out of what you learn here, like John and Wayne and all of the other patrons, head on over to podfeet.com slash Patreon and sign up for as little as a dollar a week to help support the show. My gratitude goes out to John and Wayne and all of you out there who choose to support the show in whatever way you can. I remember when Google Plus first came out and with great excitement, we all went in to see if this was something cool. I immediately started putting people in circles, thinking this was what I've been waiting for in a social network. The idea was you could have family in one circle, family you actually liked in another circle, work friends in a third, and real friends in a fourth. Then as you shared things, you could pick and choose which circles got to see only what you wanted them to see. But for some reason, that turned out to be way too much overhead for people. As excited as I was at first about it, even I stopped worrying about what circle people were in. But for me, the real greatness was when I discovered Google Plus Communities. I created one for the Nocilla Castaways, and it was an instant hit. People came out of the woodwork and started sharing cool tech stories and asking each other questions and helping each other. This was when I first realized that having a community was what would turn a mostly solo podcast from a one-to-many experience into a many-to-many community of friends. It also took the load off of me from time to time, where others would jump in with an answer before I even had a chance to try to answer them. I made new friends, you guys made friends with each other, and it was a wonderful thing. But then Facebook continued to grow and grow in popularity until there was no denying that it was where people were going nearly every day. I don't know what the statistic was back then, but as of right now, there are 1.47 billion active daily users. Now think about that, daily users. With 7.65 billion people on the planet, according to Siri, it's 7,652,516,839 people to be an exact. That means 19% of the humans on earth are on Facebook every single day. 
Now, if you're trying to build a community, the highest chances of success are if you build it where the people already are. In other words, resistance was futile. I remember saying I felt like uh, Luke Skywalker being pulled into the Sarlacc. And I have to say, Facebook has only proven itself more and more worthy of our anger and distrust over the last few years. But as begrudgingly as I created a Facebook group, I'm the first to admit that it's been fantastic. My first love will always be Google+, but every day our Facebook group is having wonderful discussions about Apple and photography and security and asking and answering each other's questions. I'm not sure why, but our group is polite and friendly, and we've never had a lick of trouble with anyone misbehaving in any way. Our Facebook group is active and fun, and I adore it. Now, you might wonder whether it's like super active, but it's not. It's a couple of posts a day, so it's real easy to keep up with. It's not this, you know, crazy thread of things going by, but it's, it's just nice. It's just the right amount, and everybody's really cool. Now, when I opened our Facebook group, I promised I would stay with Google Plus as long as you guys were there, and I have kept my word. But I have to say, the people who really wanted me to not create the Facebook group have become progressively more quiet over the last year. I can often look back over weeks and see only posts from me and Steve and Bart announcing shows. But just when I think, okay, it's gone completely silent, somebody like George from Tulsa or Steve Davidson will pop up with something interesting to contribute, and it gets fun again. They're not the only two, but, you know, it's pretty quiet. Well, the reason I'm telling this entire story is that Google announced this week that they're shutting down Google Plus early next year. The odd thing is that they combined this announcement with an, oh, by the way, that they had a significant data breach back in March. According to Engadget, they said that the company found a bug in one of the Google Plus APIs that allowed apps to access confidential user data, such as name, email, occupation, gender, and age. The only good news was that the bug didn't allow access to Google Plus posts. But you know what? Most of that stuff's pretty public, so that would have been better than giving out name, email, occupation, gender, and age. Now, Google said that they don't keep the API log data longer than two weeks, so they don't actually know whose data they lost. So they figured, "Eh, we just won't tell anybody because we don't know who to tell. I wonder how the EU looks on this with GDPR. I know GDPR wasn't in place until two months after the breach happened, but it sure seems that they should have come forward with this when GDPR kicked in. Well, whether we like it or not, Google is dropping yet another service. I have to say, I am not jumping on things when they start them anymore because it seems like they drop everything. They It's like, you know, Google searches about it, maybe Gmail, everything else. They seem to think up things they are really cool and then they go, ah, we're bored. We don't feel like doing that anymore. In this case, they say it's because user engagement is low and I can't argue with that. But now, we have a question before us as Nocilla Castaways. Where do the Google Plus Nocilla Castaways go to talk and share geeky ideas? I've had questions or discussions with quite a few people online since the announcement, and I wanted to give you my thoughts on how we might go forward. Now, in my ideal world, all Nocilla Castaways would be chatting in the same place, getting to know each other and help each other. <laughs> now that we got my unrealistic dream out of the way, we'll talk about reality. The reality is that our Facebook group is thriving and that there's a significant portion of the Nocilla Castaways who would pretty much rather have their eyeballs eaten by rats than join Facebook. So that pretty much means we have to continue to live in two worlds. I've got a few ideas of where to go and I wanted to tell you how I feel about all of them. David Sparks moved the Mac Power users over to Discourse, to a Discourse-based discussion forum pretty recently. That's not Discord, this is Discourse. 
Now, he hates Facebook, too, so that's why he created this discussion forum. I joined their discourse a while back to ask some questions, and I didn't get an answer, and I kind of forgot about it. However, I did a scan of their discourse this week, and it's actually pretty active in there. Now, the pro of using discourse is that it's essentially a pre-built, open-source tool that you can configure yourself and host yourself. But it means me renting a server, configuring the discourse tool, and Steve and I moderating a new environment. I don't know how much work that would be, but it would definitely be a significant addition to our workload. Now, Discord does not meet the standard of having a community where people already are, but rather makes them have to pick up and drive over to a new place to see what's happening. I don't think I have the energy to be the one to keep trying to get people to go somewhere new. Now, Slack is another interesting and highly requested idea. The biggest pro of Slack is that a lot of people are already in Slack, including me, so it kind of fits that criteria of being where people already are. Maybe not everyone is in Slack, but it seems to be gaining in popularity. Slack lets you embed images and links, and it has a really good API that allows plugins. One big problem, though, Allison pretty much hates Slack. I hate it less than I did originally, I gotta say. The main thing I don't like about Slack is you have a different login for every Slack you join. That sort of makes sense, but comes a real pain. Uh, in my case, I had five Slacks on five devices, which mean I ha- meant I had to log in 25 times. That's not the way to endear me to a product, I can tell you that. You also have to know the name of the Slack. Like I'm in the Screencast Online Slack, and it's screencastonline.slack.com. You have to know exactly how it's spelled and exactly what it is in order to join. You could log into the web service and have it send you links to join. Actually, I should say that's after you've already been invited. You have to be able to know that. Yeah. So if you get a new device, you have to know what that name is to get into the Slack you were already in before. Now, you can log into the web service and have it send you links to tell you which ones you're already in, but it's time-based. So every time you go to do this, you have to go in and say, send me the links. I don't know why they can't just send you long-term ones. Well, just recently when I did my clean install on my MacBook Pro and on my big iPad Pro, I wasn't looking forward to doing those 10 logins. However, when I installed Slack, it let me log in once and I was good to go. So that part of hating it has gone way down. Now, Slack has in it the concept of channels. So you join a Slack and then you have channels within it. And there's parts of the implementation that I find really annoying. For example, you have to be invited to join a channel in order to even know that it's there. The person who invents the channel decides who to invent or who to invite, I should say, or at least that's how it was when I first started. I think it's easy to get too many channels going and have it hard for people to know where to talk. You know, you can you can have a whole bunch of channels. It's like, well, there's general and there's random. What's the difference between those two? I did start checking out the management console, and it looks like as in an admin, you can decide up front the channels to which people are automatically added. Now, discovering channels, even channels you're allowed to join, is really, really difficult. I put Stephen Getz on the task today, and uh, I, I do have a Slack for the No Castaways. We haven't really opened it up yet. But I asked him, I said, figure out how do you find out what channels are even there? Because they're not visible. It turns out if you click on the word channels, it opens up the list of channels. But the problem is it's not obvious it's a link, and to the right of it is a plus, and if you hit the plus, that helps you add channels. And you don't want to add channels, you want to join an existing channel. And I think I think one of the things people like about Slack, though, is it's it's that you don't have to be in all the channels. So let's make a, up a theoretical example. Let's say we had a channel for Android, Linux, iOS, and macOS. We had four different channels. 
So the people who like Android and hate iOS would not want to be auto-added to the iOS channel, so they would go seek that Android channel. But that starts to sound like work for the admin, doesn't it? I'm going to have to explain things all the time. One of the other things I hate is that Slack will give you an icon badge showing you have an unread message. Even though you don't have an unread message, you're actually all caught up. So think about this. I'm in five Slacks and every Slack has a whole bunch of channels and there's like direct messages and uh, app messages inside these Slacks. So if you have to go into every Slack, into every channel, trying to figure out where that darn unread message is coming from. I asked around and people go, oh, yeah, that happens. Nothing you can do about it. Like, that's terrible. That's a terrible thing to have that. I mean, it just oh, drives bonkers. Happened just today. Now, Slack does support threaded messages, which is a pretty essential part of a good discussion area. However, the implementation is weird. You have to know to click on the little message bubble next to what someone wrote in order to start a thread. But mo most people don't notice the message bubble because it's actually not visible. You have to hover over their name to get it to come up. So it's like, why? you know, it's not discoverable. You have to, yeah, anyway. So what people do instead, because they don't know message bubbles even exist, they don't know about threaded messages, uh, they just reply right in line and that looks fine to them, but they haven't really done the thread thing. And then you get other people complaining about other people not doing it right, and that's annoying. I don't know. If it's easy to let people into a Slack, this might be a viable alternative. I did figure out I could change the settings of a Slack to, to allow anyone with the URL to join, but the problem is the URL is time-based. So I forget what it was. Like every 30 days, I would have to regenerate that link and put it up on the website. So, I mean, it's doable, but it's like, why did you just, just let me be open? Let me have it be open. Really kind of drives me nuts. So um, I don't know. Then I found a section in there where it said, you could let people of a certain email domain in. And I'm like, okay, I'll write in all of the domains, uh, gmail.com, uh, mac.com, me.com, icloud.com, uh, aol.com, hotmail.com. I, I just went, I'm typing all of these in and I hit enter and it says, no, you can't have uh, hotmail. I'm like, what do you got against hotmail? I mean, I don't have a hotmail account, but okay, fine, not hotmail. And I delete that one. And the one I'd written before that was Gmail. It says, no, you can't do Gmail. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't do gmail.com? So I take that one out. Pretty soon I erase them all. I start typing it one at a time. I can't get it to accept any email domains. So I thought, okay, maybe it just wants me to say Gmail, nothing else. So I put in Gmail and it goes, nope, that's not a, that's not a domain. So I don't know. I don't know what that's for. So I'm not really sure how that's going to work out, but eh, maybe we can make it workable. Well, the week before last, you heard Matthias trying to explain Mastodon. A lot of people are excited about it. That fits some of our criteria, but not most of our criteria. It's incredibly difficult to understand, even for highly technical people. Dorothy has been trying to help me figure out how to even get back into the Mastodon server I did join. I joined Mastodon.social. I'm positive because I've got it in one password. I've got my login. But for some reason, the way the website's working, it keeps taking my name Podfeet instead of Allison at Podfeet.com. And I think that's what's confusing it. But then I tried it on my Mac and I couldn't get in anyway. You know, maybe someday it'll be ready for us, but I don't think that day is today. Now, one place I've suggested we try is our Discord server. Not Discourse, but Discord. It's already set up for our live chat, and so far people have found it to be much easier to join than the old IRC chat. It does allow embedding of images and links, and you can be as anonymous as you like, which people do enjoy. 
Now, it sort of fits our where you already are criteria, since so many of the active participants are live show listeners, but it's certainly nothing like Facebook in terms of numbers. The other thing is that it doesn't have threaded messages at all. So let's say you leave a question there on Tuesday at 3 p.m. There could be 20 messages going by and none of them have anything to do with what you wrote. I'm not sure that even meets the vaguest uh, definition of a discussion forum, does it? Oh, and Nurse and uh, Dan told me it's not very accessible. So other than that, it's awesome. All right. The bottom line is we need a place for the people who hate Facebook to meet and make trouble together. I hate to admit it, but it really sounds like Slack might be the best alternative right now. I'm going to do some more noodling around in there and see if I can stand it for the long haul and if I can figure out a way to make it easy for you to join. I don't want there to be any barrier. I don't want you to have to email me and request or anything. I just I just want it to go. I want you to get in there and have fun. I hate the idea of closed communities. Who knows, maybe in the next six months before Google Plus shuts down, somebody will finally come out with the perfect social network that we can all love and we will all flock there together. Let me know what you guys think about this. I really, really want your feedback. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. And tell me what you think about where we should go with the uh, with the communities here by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You could also tweet me, if you like, at podfeet. Now, remember, anything you're looking for, start with podfeet.com slash whatever it is. You want to become a Patreon? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. You can still go to podfeet.com slash Google Plus, but I wouldn't recommend joining there now. You can join into our, our Discord chat at podfeet.com slash chat. And if you want to use the Amazon affiliate links, don't forget podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Alan did after, uh, I think he talked to me once, but this is the first time in the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.